Welcome to Creatio's No-Code Playbook Podcast, where we discuss insights, tips, success stories, and how to leverage the no-code approach to transform business and deliver applications of any complexity. I'm your host, Jason Miller, head of pre-sales here at Creatio in the Americas. Today, we're going to continue our discussion with Burley Kawasaki, co-author of the No-Code Playbook, and we're going to continue the discussion on the no-code approach. Burley, welcome back. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Yeah. So in our last discussion, we covered a wide variety of topics, which included the first five-ish um, steps of the no-code approach. And when we left off, we left off talking about prototyping to MVP. And our discussion last time was very much focused on not only can I build faster, but because of the the, the technology, the no-code technology, it really helps facil- facilitate good feedback and good interaction with those end users. So I want to pick up our discussion and talk about the feedback loop. And what are some of the ways that you see or, or maybe recommend to really help collect that feedback and making sure that you're incorporating that into your iterative lifestyle as you're building out new pieces on a no-code application? One of the things, uh, Jason, it's important, and you talked about this in the last podcast, was that this is not happening in a linear fashion. So the the feedback stage is actually happening concurrent with the prototype to MVP, right? Because as you are building small amounts of features or functionality, you want to be getting feedback as you go. And in, in the book, we talk about different approaches to managing the work. We, we talk a fair amount around uh, a, a flavor of Agile called the Kanban method. And one of the advantages about Kanban is that unlike sort of traditional methodologies where you have to wait to the end of a sprint or you have to wait to the end of a release to sort of have something that you can demo back or show back to the business. Um, Kanban is very much when it's ready, you, you can then take that unit and, and get feedback immediately. And, and so we we advocate um, much more rapid uh, and frequent feedback cycles, um, uh, potentially every day, although I think we talk about in the book at least a couple times a week is sort of a good cadence. And so you know, taking smaller amounts of time from your stakeholder to get feedback is something we that is uh, important. We talk about in the book. Um, it's it's also important to recognize though that if you have you know too many stakeholders and you you get lots of feedback that that also can be very hard to prioritize and, and, and to deliver against in the MVP. And so while you may be getting input from power users and SMEs, it's important to really be clear on who your no-code stakeholder is. And and so ideally you have one, at least one that is empowered to to make decisions, to break disagreement. We, you have to have someone that can say that is is important, that is not, and we're going to keep the team moving forward. Yeah, and in, in, in an agile world, that would be the product owner. But in, in the no-code world, it's a new, it's a new um, persona that, that you have addressed and, and identified. And it's a combination of maybe a techno-functional and a business person, right? So it's someone who can work hand-in-hand hand with the no-code architect to really help prioritize those things. And, and we're going to throw another graphic up here that, that you bring up. It's in uh, page 129, chapter 13 of the no-code playbook. It's really around that feedback loop process. And it's it talks about, you know, selecting and engaging the right stakeholders. It then talks about understanding and building the micro use cases based upon the feedback that you're collecting and, and reviewing those cases, triaging those those feedback pieces that you're getting in. And then ultimately, to your point, is addressing that feedback, getting it into the Kanban, moving it downstream and, and helping prioritize those things. So I think you guys did a really good job, especially in these middle chapters, chapters 11 through 14, really, talking about not only how to move through the MVP process 
and develop this feedback loop process. But also you talk, you start to go into, you know, what is the best way to triage, not only what's in the backlog, but what's in the live scope. And you kind of move forward from there. Next thing I want to talk about is governance. So as we move down the approach here, we start to have to think about a lot of things around governance, right? And there's different types of governance. And you call this out in the playbook, right? You've got internal governance, external compliance requirements, right? It might be something like GDPR, HIPAA, something like that. How, how should organizations think about compliance, especially when it applies to no-code technologies, right? Because almost all no-code technologies, not all, but almost all no-code technologies can try to align themselves to these governance standards. But how can companies really use no-code technology to their advantage and assure themselves that they have this compliance, whatever it is? I think uh, there's a natural tendency, if you're in IT and you're watching <laughs> this podcast, the whole discussion of no-code and governance you know, sometimes can be uh, anxiety producing because, you know, the thought of people who may not have gone through security training or the governance training starting to build their own apps can 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 be, you know, uh, a, a very uh, sort of new concept. But but I would flip it around and, and see that this is actually an opportunity to, to give your business teams, your DIY teams, a standard way, uh, you know, that's secure, that's managed to build their own applications because, they will run off and, and, you know, engage in shadow IT. And so, you know, one of the principles we talk about is, you know, get out ahead of that and proactively enable them with, uh, you know, a standard platform and tools that they can repeatedly build apps in a governed fashion. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really proactive strategy, I think, for a lot of, a lot of IT organizations to invest in no code. Um, and then secondly, this device is more for them, the business teams, recognizing that most of them haven't gone or may not have gone through a lot of training or may not be fully aware. One of the things we call out is early in the life cycle, I think we actually call this out in, in stage four in the project assignment phase, you should start consulting with you know, security and operations and some of the different groups that, that you'll need to partner with uh, when it comes time for governance. And, and so much earlier, just given the speed that no code operates on, much earlier than sort of you typically would, you should be collaborating with them, starting to understand what aspects of governance apply to you. Um, and then the final concept we do talk about also is, you know, the, the governance is a sort of a scalable uh, topic, right? You, you may have only a little bit of governance or, or no, almost no governance, or you, because your app may not touch any sensitive data or may not be, you may not be in an industry that's heavily regulated, or you may have on the other side of the spectrum, you may have a highly mission critical app with lots of sensitive data, lots of technical complexity that may require a stronger involvement from governance teams. And so back to a concept we, we discussed in the last podcast, the application matrix is your friend. <laughs> the application matrix will help you size or scale. Do I need to go through the whole set of governance checks? Do I need a, maybe a more streamlined path? But don't assume that all governance has to be applied all the time because that's that's not usually the case. But but when you do need to apply it and, and when the application matrix helps assess that it requires more significant involvement from security or for operations, then plan ahead and get them involved much, much earlier in the in the project lifecycle. Yeah, you've actually got a whole section on planning ahead written into the books. It's important to think about those things. And, and the other thing, too, is 
I think what's important to understand as you're evaluating different no-code technologies from a from a platform standpoint is, as organizations are looking at it, understand how no-code platforms can help support your governance. How do they support your application lifecycle management? How do they give you the audit, the traceability, and the visibility into what's going on within the organization? Because I think, Burley, as you mentioned, some things don't need a lot of governance, right? These small little simple apps, you know, something like a, you know, a travel request, right? A travel request may not require a lot of governance, right? Now the backend financial pieces do, right? But the the actual request portion may not require a lot of governance. So think about those things as you're as you're selecting your no code platform as well. The how do they help enable and automate a lot of this governance for you? So we're going to continue down, and we're moving rapidly through the no code playbook. We're two thirds of the way through the playbook. We're already into um, stage eight in chapter fifteen, which is the first release. Now I think. <laughs> The quote, again, another quote that I just love here, you you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And that was, uh, you know, it's a very popular expression. But when you think about that first release, so you've, you've gotten to your MVP, you've gotten all the stakeholder approval, and you're ready to roll this out to the masses. How does this process work? And, and what can people expect on this first release using the no-code approach? Well, it, it is a very important milestone because this is the first time that that actual end users will start to use the app, right? And, and so if you <laughs> don't make a good impression, right? You, you roll the app out without, you know, proper investments around user enablement, training, et cetera, or you haven't aligned it with some of the other process changes, right? You, you, you can you can have the best app in the world that can fail <laughs> miserably because you, you just have maybe not thought or planned for that final step. So the, the final step, um, is really just sort of a checklist, right? It's to make sure that when you release to to a live production environment, that you've thought through, you know, the users and how they will they will be trained on the app. You you have to think about sort of the process around that, the operations. Do you have the right operational model to support it? Um, and then we 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 don't have time to discover discuss all of the, sort of the nuances around environments, but there's there's a necessary element to making sure that you have sort of the right environments in place so that when you're in a live production environment and you need to continuously then release more changes or you need to you know fix things that are, are uh, showing up in terms of the user experience that you have a thoughtful way to sort of move move your application between different internal staging environments so it's outside of the scope today but important set of considerations so that when you go live you're ready and you're confident that you can you can support the user the user experience yeah, and I'll, from a technology standpoint, I'll make that plug again as organizations look at what no-code technologies to bring in. Understand how they support your application lifecycle management. Do they support Git? Do they support Jenkins? Do they have a Clio that you can use to move and migrate from environment to environment to environment? Or do they, at a minimum, have tools inside the own application platform to be able to deploy across your various um, environments, right? So as you're moving from dev to test to prod, et cetera. So, we're closing in on the end here. We've got the last four sections and and these I think are probably some of the most important sections, right? So when we when we break down these last sections, we've got four sections: feedback collection, incremental improvement, everyday delivery, and application audit. And if we think about these four sections, I want to I want to group them all together because it's really around how do I take what I've got now and I start to move forward. I start to iterate, I start to build, I start to expand on my use cases. So as we talked about building a feedback loop before, the feedback collection is really about taking feedback now that you went through that first application launch. 
Talk to me about how to use that with incremental improvement. And, and why is this different than a rescoping exercise or a phase two in a waterfall project? How is this different? Well, I think, you know, classically end users are sort of trained. Well, if, if I didn't get into my first release, then it, it's going to be a long time before any of my requests get responded to. And that is absolutely not the case. In everyday delivery, you're continuing the pace that you, you had during the, the, the build of the first release. It, in, in you're maintaining a, a steady stream of responsiveness to, to, to features in the backlog, to, to user requests. You're constantly delivering every day, which is you know, sort of the goal. Now, in practice, maybe it's not every day. Maybe it's every other day or once or twice a week. The, the point is still the same, which is it's more about continuous delivery of value to the end users. It, it trains them to, to expect a, a much different type of collaboration between, you know, uh, the, the, the development team who is building, maintaining the app and what they're used to expecting, right? Classically, again, they're used to having to wait months, quarters, years for, for their feedback to show up. Um, and, and, and so as they think about sort of this continuous stream, it allows you to, to respond to, you know, to a, a lot of feedback, but it's still important to have a, a structured process for prioritization for determining which feedback should be listened to. That, that becomes a challenge. You will have too much feedback, in fact, that if you, if you aren't careful can steer you in, in a lot of different paths. And so the chapters do talk about a framework and way to, to, to measure and prioritize the value that, that you're delivering. It's no longer a test of, is this an MVP scope or not? But now it's about the business value and the stakeholders, objectives and criteria that they have defined back in the business use case. So I'll go back to the last podcast, but they will have criteria that you can then measure and prioritize against in terms of delivering ongoing everyday updates. It's funny. So I think that you you go back in the in the IT world and if you if you told folks that not only can I deliver an MVP in a short period of time because of technology acceleration, I'm going to be able to iterate and roll out to production. Even if you said every week, I think they would have told you you're crazy. What you're literally talking about is making micro incremental changes on a regular basis. Now, this this poses two challenges. One, rate of change and, and, and adoption by end users. So you have to, I do think there is some caution here. Um, you don't want to overwhelm them. So you have to plan that out a little bit. But let's talk about the benefit. How, how, how empowering is this to the end users? If you can collect that feedback and give them what they need in just a matter of a couple of days, how is this going to impact I'll even go with something specific, employee engagement, right? You've got right. a system, oh, it doesn't work for me. Well, now it can, and it can rapidly. How is this so impactful on, on businesses going forward? It, it encourages them to, you know, to provide feedback because they know that any feedback they get will be responded to in a, in a short amount of time. So they are, they're much more open and they will, uh, they will give you ideas that they classically don't think they would. Um, I do think that, um, you know, this, is a way then to um, to really harness a lot of the energy and the innovation as well. It's 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 going to create more ideas on possible new you know new features, new requirements. So one of the things we talk about in the book is it's not just take the backlog that you had built during MVP and continue to work on that. You will get new insights from your end users, right? Because they're the ones who are using it every day, and so it it takes prioritization 
um, you know, of their ideas into this, the, the set of ideas that you may already have captured. Um, I, I will sort of maybe give a counter argument though, to one thing you, you said, which is the rate of change can be overwhelming to the end mm -hmm. users. I actually think in a lot of ways, when you're delivering lots of small updates, it actually is easier for the end user because instead of having this big massive release that requires a ton of training or readiness, if, if there's lots of sort of smaller improvements, it's easier and almost invisible sometimes to them that, you know, that, that the application has changed. So the the day to day or you know release to release sort of change in user adoption is easier. For, for the bigger sort of functional changes, yes, you absolutely do need to be thoughtful about you know do we have the right enablement? Do we have the other you know training or documentation in place? But a lot of the small changes you can do that because it's so small that they just sort of pick it up in line with their everyday use. Counterpoint made, and I think I agree. You've changed my mind. <laughs> and that's, that's the best portion of this is because, you know, I come from a more traditional delivery methodology. So even, even you know, myself, I, I sometimes find myself falling back into that old way of thinking, right? Whether it was waterfall or even agile and having a very set cadence of this is how you deliver and this is how you do it. And, you know, we've been living this no code methodology for years now over here at Gratio. But it's it's even it's sometimes it's refreshing to even come back and get I don't know, slapped in my yeah. own face by a dose of reality sometimes. I would say one one important piece of this, both in the collection as well as then in the stage ten on incremental improvements, is is really taking the feedback you get and decomposing them though down into small use cases. Right, the smaller and more granular you get, the easier it is from a rollout and a user enablement. Perspective. It also we talk in the book about just managing dependencies. Um, if you have you know multiple teams or multiple developers, uh, you know if you have really small granular sort of micro use cases, it's a lot easier to release these because it reduces the sort of the conflict resolution and the dependencies across teams. Yeah, absolutely. So that yeah, it's a really good point. I stand corrected. I love it. Um, so when we get to the final stage, it's really about management. It's about application audit. It's making sure that the governance and the structure, not only that the platform itself gives you, um, it's about how you're managing this platform and how you're doing things from a data visibility standpoint, from an audit and reporting standpoint. It, it's this admin piece. And I think everybody understands why it's so critical. But talk to us a little bit about how you envision no-code tools really helping with this. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I, the application audit in some ways is is the most overlooked <laughs> stage. I, you know, I, I think people uh, get so focused on sort of their, you know, their next update or next release. And, and the, the audit is, is really looking sort of back, if you will, more holistically and trying to assess, you know, over time how the application and the user and the process have evolved. So we, we talk about things such as looking for obsolescence of processes or are these features still relevant? Do we need to, you know, take things out of the application? Everyone is trained to, oh, the application should have more, it should have more. But truth is you keep adding more features over time, your applications get bloated and they get more complex. The user experience gets more complex. So the audit is about actually taking things out and simplifying it to match the way the business or the process is, has evolved. And at some point your application may reach end of life, right? Because the application has been replaced by another app or another process. And and so, you know, this, this app application audit is very retrospective in a lot of ways. Um, it is, is, I think, most commonly probably part of a center of excellence when that exists, just because the COE, I think, you know, has, is, is whether they're 
primary uh, reasons for being is to re create repeatable processes that look broadly across the enterprise. And, and, and a COE will help guide some of the audit, but, but if the COE does not yet exist in your, your organization, I think the project team then needs to make sure that on some interval, whether it be quarterly or once a year, they do you know, introspect on how the application and the process and the business have evolved, um, including you, you, you called out briefly sort of how governance may have evolved, right? It's possible mm -hmm. that when the application started, it was very simple and it didn't require a lot of sensitive data. But now that as you added more data in, you now have more, you know, PII data, or it started to use uh, data that now triggers some other types of governance or compliance considerations. And so the evolution, you know, of the governance checklist is also an important thing that the audit should hopefully catch. I think that's great. And, and, and you know, all of these 12 stages that we've talked about over the last two podcasts, are, you, you've articulated them in great detail in the no-code playbook, which finally gives us the, a chance to take a step back and, and pause for a minute. And in chapter 22, you talk about making the no-code approach your everyday approach and, and how to really focus on three steps, educate and engage, group and expand, qualify and prioritize. And, and these steps, I think, um, I think are important for any organization as they start their journey using no-code technology. But as we wrap here, Burley, I'd really like to get kind of your final thoughts on how these three steps, as well as the 12 stages of the no code approach, really work together to how they how to help empower businesses. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's such an excitement, there's such hype around no code. But but, you know, again, enterprises that have uh, that have used traditional software development have, have methodologies like Agile, but nothing had existed around no code until now. So so the thing that excites me the most about, I think, um, the playbook and some of its opportunity to apply these concepts is that it fills a void that the enterprise has to really make a repeatable uh, process for how you build no code apps. And it doesn't mean slowing things down. It doesn't mean taking away any of the energy or excitement, but it ensures that as you build your apps and you know, hopefully it's one of dozens or hundreds of applications, right? It gives you a repeatable way to do it with confidence, with scale, that, that will still meet all of the most demanding enterprise requirements. And so that's that's really what this is all about. Well, Burley, I want to, again, thank you for your time. I do encourage all of the listeners and all of the, all of the folks that are watching on YouTube, go out, get a copy of the book. The hard copy book is available on Amazon. It's 15 bucks. It is so worth it. And Burley, thank you. And thank you to Catherine for writing this book and really empowering the evolution of no code. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to everyone watching. Appreciate it. And for those of you who are watching us on the YouTube channel, please make sure that you like and share the video and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For those of you who are listening on your favorite podcast platform, we hope you've enjoyed your time together with us today. Check out our previous episodes on the various platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and more. To get more information about the products and services, please visit us at www.creatio.com. And for more insights about upcoming events, including our upcoming big event, May 4th and 5th in Fort Lauderdale, please check out our events page. No Code Events is at www.creatio.com. We'll talk to you soon. Have a wonderful day.